Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Started recording here. Um, John, if you don't mind, just for folks in the audience that might not be familiar with, with who you are, what you do, could you give us a quick little brief uh, background description, maybe? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm a CEO of a company called Power Athlete. Uh, we're based out of Austin, Texas. Um, we do global strength and conditioning, uh, really large group performance training kind of implementation. Like we've worked with the U.S. military, Texas National Guard, and uh, gone in and really done large groups. Um, kind of pioneered a lot of online training resources probably about five or six years ago. Uh, before that, I worked as a contractor for CrossFit for nine years, helping them develop their tech on how to train athletes. I think I traveled the world, taught over 200 seminars. I think we did 300 plus seminars on every continent on the globe over nine years, basically implementing my own version of CrossFit. So 2009, uh, when I got approached by CrossFit, that was actually my, after my, um, I got injured in my 10th year in the NFL. So I got drafted to Philadelphia Eagles in 99, uh, played there five years and went to the Kansas City Chiefs for four years. And then my 10th year was with the New England Patriots where I ended up getting injured. And then, uh, so I was rehabbing on the couch. That's when uh, CrossFit hit me up about helping them with develop their technology on how to train athletes. What position were you playing when you were in the NFL? Played offensive line, played guard okay. and tackle. So I played okay. guard for the Eagles and then right tackle for the Chiefs. So what, what did you have to wait about? What? 300 ish or something like that when you're typically um, playing? Yeah, I've actually weighed 308, 312 pretty consistently. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was going to say that in my heaviest, I was like 305. So <laughs> I know it's, it's, you probably, have you, I assume you slimmed down since those days, I would imagine. Yeah, I'm probably in the 270s. Yeah, so that, that feels a little better. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't really a big deal. I think I was the only dude over 300. They ever tested under 10% on the bod pot. So yeah, I was about lot. 8%. So I rocked about 282 pounds of lean muscle that year. Yeah, that's so, always an interesting thing with the, the O-linemen because you guys sometimes have to try to gain more weight than your body's probably super comfortable carrying. So post-career, um, if you dial it in. Yeah, I, I think guys really fail in understanding nutrition and how to train and that it takes a long time to develop that level of density. And I just don't think people eat correctly. And um, I always realized it and – looked around and I just saw guys carrying a ton of extra body fat that ended up resulting in a lot of low back injuries and just shitty performance. So I think there was just a better way to do it. The problem is a lot of people don't subscribe to it because it's hard. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about nutrition. You know, obviously I, I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm on basically a meat based diet for the most part. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I stay lean and strong and I'm in my fifties and, uh, you know, it's worked pretty well for me. Zach, you know, obviously is a, is a, world-class runner. He's got hundred mile world records and uh, he is uh, on a lower carb diet, sometimes meat-based. What are your thoughts on nutrition? You know, as far as what's, what are we doing wrong with nutrition? What are we doing? What, what, what should we be doing more of? Um, um, when I came in the NFL, I was pretty lucky. 
Uh, I think I subscribed to like a lot of standard type stuff like most people, but um, the guy that ended up hooking me up with my first supplement deal was a guy named Mauro De Pasquale. And Mauro was really the father of carb cycling and ketogenic diets and all that. And everything that we've seen in the last 20 plus years is basically a rip off of Mauro's work. Um, so Mauro actually did my original diet stuff. And I always ate kind of a cyclical ketogenic diet and, um, you know, would rotate and, and uh, you know, go, you know, super, almost no carb, you know, high protein, high, higher fat, and then would kind of, you know, once a week, just kind of refill with carbs. And I ended up being super lean and it really was uh, beneficial for me for just a lot of reasons. Um, the one thing which I think is pretty interesting, at least that I noticed, um, you know, and the one thing that I really got tweaked on was this idea of metabolic flexibility, like the strongest, healthiest uh, people to carry the least amount or the most amount of muscle needed the, the greatest metabolic flexibility, the ability to be able to digest or as many micronutrients or, you know, macronutrients, however you want to say it as possible. So I always kind of figured if I could only digest one, like if the only thing you can digest, and I know you do the, uh, the carnivore diet, and I've seen it really fix a lot, of pro a lot of problems for people that have had some autoimmune issues. And I think that's just indicative of poor metabolic flexibility. I mean, if you get to the point where you can only digest one macronutrient, I think you, your, your gut's probably in some trouble. Yeah, no, clearly, I mean, there's, you know, we're trying to figure out why it's working and, and, and the gut does seem to be a prime place. You know, there's interesting work on gut permeability, which does that. And, you know, I'm an advocate of adding back in for people. And, and I, and I talk to them about do that. Some do, some don't, some, some do that successfully. You know, it depends how, how messed up they are and how long they've been messed up. And, you know, obviously the, the goal is to avoid developing the, the problems in the first place. Um, sure. Talk a little bit. Now, did you compete in CrossFit at some mm -hmm. point? How did you fare with that being a bigger guy? Because it's not really a big guy sport. I, I just started messing with it myself, and I'm finding it <sighs> six foot five. Uh, some of the things are pretty hard. Yeah, I um, uh, going into my tenth year to go play for the Patriots. I was back at home in Newport Beach, and I got roped into going to a CrossFit gym because it was the only place that had Olympic lifting bumpers that wasn't about a 45 minute drive. So I started training at this local CrossFit gym. Uh, I was still driving up to Athletes Performance up in Carson. And, uh, you know, if you guys know Southern California, I lived in Newport and, Car and uh, um, Athletes Performance is up in Carson, which is about 29 miles, but on a bad day, that could be about four hours. On a good day, it was about 30 minutes. So I used to go up and train at this CrossFit gym. And as I was getting ready to go play for the Patriots, uh, the owner of the gym asked me if I wanted to compete in this thing called the CrossFit Games. And I guess he had told the CrossFit, you know, mothership of aliens that, uh, you know, this NFL dude's been playing, training at the gym. So they hit me up and said, Hey, do you want to compete in this CrossFit games? And my comment was like, what's the CrossFit games? And they said, Oh, a bunch of people get together, work out and they get prizes. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll go win that thing. So I think I was 312, 312 pounds when I showed up and out of a field of a two or 300, I think I finished in the seventies and, um, you know, it was, you know, 95 pound thrusters and burpees and deadlifts against 135 pound man or men, <laughs> which is funny because the dudes are actually smaller than the chicks. Uh, it was pretty awful. And I think like the, the biggest dude, un, like the next biggest guy was probably about 180. So obviously they stacked the workouts against me and didn't put anything of any significant weight or anything for me to shine, which, you know, I didn't really understand the, the mindset that, you know, CrossFit's always trying to expose people for who, you know, how it fits and serves them instead of, you know, helping me in a little bit. But I always am a good sport and I'll go up and fuck that shit up. I was, I was in my, I think I was 32 when that happened. If I had been 24 or 25, I would have fucking smashed those dudes. So I mean, yeah. after 10, after 10 years in the NFL, man, you age in dog years, like give me my, yeah. my first couple years in the NFL, I would have fucking run those dudes into the ground. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's it's an interesting different, you know, it's obviously designed uh, for smaller people. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, it's just the way it's uh, way it's set up, you know, looking at the majority of the stuff. But, uh, well, the program was developed by a guy who was, um, you know, a polio stricken gymnast. You know, he couldn't do any ground based stuff. Everything was ring and upper body based. It's all sagittal plane, no change of direction, all straight ahead. I mean, it's basically designed by a guy and, you know, people fail at the margins of their experience. And the program was designed by a guy who, you know, never pulled a deadlift, never back squatted. Everything was based off of his, you know, his needs and how he was training. So it's very self-selecting in that way. Yeah. I mean, you know, you tell, I mean, I like, you know, like I said, I, you know, I do well in rowing because I'm built to row. I'm a big, sure. long, strong guy and I can row a lot. And I, you know, I set some world records in the rowing machines and stuff, but you know, it's, it's uh, so, you know, you said you have your sort of quote unquote own version. I mean, I personally like the fact that you're training through different, re, you know, rep schemes and conditioning, different variables. I, I like that aspect of it. It's just some of the things are built for different people, different sure. leverages. So what do you, when you say you kind of had your own sort of version, can you describe so, what So, yeah, I was really the only person on earth uh, that was granted, I guess you could say, by the, you know, powers that be to design their own level of CrossFit, their own version of CrossFit, and then pushed it out of the market. So 2009, uh, Greg Glassman approached me and his comment was help us develop our technology and how to train athletes. And my first comment was the way that you guys train isn't necessarily fostering and developing athleticism and it's not really doing much for speed and power. And he said, well, why don't you do that? So they asked me to design my own version of CrossFit based on the other side of, you know, the power spectrum with uh, big, strong, fast, short duration, big horsepower type stuff. So all the other specialty seminars that you saw from CrossFit Endurance to Olympia, all these other ones were just SMEs that were teaching various skills to implement within your CrossFit template. Uh, my stuff at CrossFit Football was uh, really the only kind of anointed CrossFit deal that was its own training system. And I think people liked it more just because it, you got to bang weight, uh, heavy, hard, short conditioning. Everybody got pretty jacked and everybody had a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I, okay. So I, I remember the CrossFit football when it came out. I so saw you didn't realize you were the guy that sort of helped develop that or develop that. So that's that's good. Oh stuff. yeah, no, what's one hundred percent me? There was no help in it. It was just me and uh, coming up with workouts and going down to my garage and doing them. And you know, basically, what I did is I. Um, you ever heard the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist? Yeah. And the best trick that I ever played was uh, convincing the CrossFit market to do strength and conditioning templates. So I basically took standardized strength conditioning templates and things that I had done and just translated them into CrossFit terms. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, you know, myself, I've been training myself for 40 years, you know, I've been lifting for, you know, now for 40 years and I, and I, and I, and I subscribe to a lot of what it sounds like I'm a lot of high intensity, you know, hit type stuff, heavy lifting, post-activation potentiation stuff, mm -hmm. putting, putting, you know, exercises together heavy, you know, explosive. Dude, that's stuff. how people have been training for 40 years. Right. Uh, it was, it was hilarious. I remember when I started rolling out all the PAP stuff to people, uh, they were like, Oh, these triplets and couplets. And I'm like, yep. You realize that, uh, we've been doing heavy back squats and sprints and jumps and all the plyometrics and all these different movements. Like this has been the basis of my training for my, you know, since we were in college and, uh, it just happened that CrossFit's done more for putting barbells in people's hands. But the interesting thing is CrossFit just kind of came out and said, we own all this stuff. We, we invented it, you know, kind of like the uh, Austin Powers, you know, the father made crazy claims like he invented the question mark. Uh, it was kind of similar to that. And you're like, you realize we used to, in high school, we used to run 400 meter runs and stop at the pull-up bar and jump up and do max rep pull-ups. Like that was in like 93. So 
you know, I, I think what they did is they sexified it. They put it into a system. You know, they went online early, giving free workouts away. And I think it was uh, really intelligent in terms of grasping the market. But the problem is, it's like I said earlier, people fail at the margins of their experience. And if your experience is such and it's not doesn't look like training athletes, it just looks like fitness. I mean, you can get you can get extremely fit just doing air squats. But there's no way, uh, you know, uh, you know, 50 air squats or 100 or 500 air squats is going to get you to ready to, to, you know, run a 4.3 or a sprint or jump 42 inches or sprint through a dude if you had to, like a, like a brick wall, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I remember, like, uh, even, you know, Charlie Francis, who coached yeah. Ben Johnson, I mean, he had him doing dude. heavy cleans before he ran his 100s. I mean, he yeah. And so that's the type of stuff that uh, uh dude i'm a huge charlie francis guy i talked to charlie in 99 after i ruptured my patellar tendon um and i got hooked up with charlie through mauro de pasqual and i remember mauro or uh charlie's hooked me up with all the ems devices and all these protocols on how to fix my knee and we talked a ton about training and i remember his deal was the only way you get to run fast is by running fast so if you're not running fast you're doing tempo runs and um i think he told me ben johnson box squatted like 600 pounds for a triple or a set of five you know, a few days before he ran his world record runs and talked about the idea of heavy weights. And, you know, he has all this guy's bench. I mean, it was, um, it was pretty interesting. And like Charlie was super impactful uh, for me in terms of developing my sprint stuff and my training. Are you still affiliated with CrossFit now or is that, is no. that something? Okay. So you kind of stepped away. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I started power athlete, my company uh, when we launched across the football page and okay, cool. Um, and power athlete was always kind of working in the background. And that was really the stuff that we did with, uh, you know, when we were working with NIMP Special Warfare, any of the military, any of the large groups that we were working with was always done through power athlete. And then uh, I just, you know, over time, it just became kind of like an awkward relationship. And I'm sure you guys have all dated people where it's been like, God, I can't believe that we're still dating. This person should have broken up with me years ago. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of what happened where, you know, I had gone in such a far different direction that it just felt disingenuous to even be using the CrossFit name. And I remember they hit me up on this, uh, this branding issue and they were like, you know, uh, we need to rebrand. Like we can't call this thing CrossFit anymore. And, and I was like, yeah, I can't believe you guys have allowed me to operate for almost nine or 10 years using your brand uh, name of CrossFit and teaching none of your methodology. And they were like, shocked and i'm like i'm not a fucking crazy person i was like dude i understand trademarks and branding and all the stuff that i've done over the last decade in terms of building my own stuff if anything what i'm doing is predatory on your brand and all of a sudden all, all it does is just erodes you guys and like they were like got all shocked and were like you're okay with this i'm like 100 like let's change it and then uh, as soon as and then once we changed kind of changed it up into some other deal it just ended there shortly it just was kind of like we tried one more time but we just couldn't make our differences work and the reason being is I became really focused on performance and I didn't really give a shit about fitness. You know, the idea of performance being something that you're training for that actually has some practical application, something beyond the training. If the only performance you're searching for is, you know, to PR your daily wad, then I'm not the guy for you. Yeah. You know, we, we were really focused on, you know, this idea of performance, which is I don't give a shit how fit you are. I don't care what your numbers look like. If you don't perform and you don't win, then what we were doing was, was not right and needs to be adjusted. Yeah, John, if we can jump into that a little bit, I think that'd be interesting because Sean and I talk about quite a few times on this show where, uh, like, depending on the athlete, obviously, uh, we're kind of like always when things are going well and injuries aren't popping up and stuff, you're kind of staying at this, like, area where you're really fit at, like, maybe 90 to 95% of your potential and you kind of wait for this maybe, like, six to – 
at most probably eight week time frame where you just kind of go to the well a little harder and peak out that fitness in time for a competition or something like that. Is that kind of how you have your stuff structured too, or is your stuff more structured towards kind of keeping people in that, that plane of just like kind of overall fitness uh, without kind of maybe necessarily sharpening the spear to the point where they're going to need to kind of step back a while after just to let everything kind of catch back up. Well, I think if you actually have something set in the stone, like, Hey, I'm training for this one contest or something, I think you could periodize for it. The problem uh, that we ran into a lot of people, especially with a lot of the first responders and military and just individuals that we were working with, where they kind of had to keep this constant level of readiness. And, the, and you were talking about that 10% that it was, uh, it was really easy for me to cover that t- last 10% if everybody was really strong and fast. So if you were big, strong and fast and pretty explosive, I could periodize you that last 10%. The problem is, is if you ask me to get you strong, it's going to take me a lifetime. So as long as everybody was, uh, you know, training smart, and um, I'm also a big proponent, uh, proponent of compensatory acceleration, which is the idea that as mechanical advantage increases, so does speed. Um, so, you know, when we lift weights, if we're going to move a lighter weight, I'm still going to move it as fast as possible. So I think, uh, kind of the mix of compensatory acceleration with the rep maxes and just a lot of the ways that we started kind of periodizing the program and really off of this daily matrix where, you know, um, I, I recently talked about it and, uh, somebody asked me this on, on our podcast and I think it was a quote by Hereticles that said, um, the second time a man walks in a river, he's not the same man. Because one, he's not the same man, and two, it's not the same river. And I always thought about that in terms of like uh, classic periodization where, you know, you have this moment frozen in time based off a percentage that you're going to build this whole program out opposed from something where you're like, hey, let me look at my daily matrix. So I think as long as I could keep people, you know, focusing on bar speed, lifting heavy weights, jumping, moving, you know, multiple planes of motion, you know, focusing and really prioritizing athleticism, I could get them to cover that last 10% very easily. Like they were almost, they were, they were closer than me having to go back and try to get people ready. So like, if you're going to go out and run your hundred miles, you're going to, you have a race. It was really easy for me to change the training, you know, six, eight weeks out and get you ready for that. If we had that really good foundation. So that was really just by, by focus. Yeah, I've always found it interesting how a lot of the sports are kind of designed under those same principles because for like for the obviously like Sean and I and probably you and I are heading in two different directions in terms of what we're kind of trying to prepare for. But, you know, for like the extreme endurance athlete, it's kind of like you said, with like you just develop that really strong aerobic threshold, aerobic foundation. And then you're kind of in that position if you're really good there where you can start putting in that specific stuff like the VO2 max workouts, the anaerobic threshold or lactic acid or lactic threshold type workouts and really kind of sure. peak for whatever the intensity of the event is. And I always just find that side of things really interesting regardless of what sport it is. Well, the, um, the issue we ran into with CrossFit in terms of training, like uh, big horsepower, short duration, explosive athletes was to be good at CrossFit and to be able to sustain uh, like long duration type workouts you had to have a conversion of fast twitch muscle fibers to slow twitch muscle fibers to be able to do that sustained amount of work. And for, you know, a sport like football where it's five to seven seconds, max intensity, it just didn't really lend claim. And I remember going in there and toying and like looking at this and looking with this. And I remember Rob Wolf, um, who I know you guys know, uh, you know, Rob and I've been friends for geez over a decade. Um, I remember talking with Rob about this and, you know, Poliquin and everybody that was smart that had kind of tried to tweak this, high intensity interval training, lactate threshold type work. And uh, there was like a very specific dose response. And there was a place for it early in the off season in terms of building GPP and basic physical conditioning, you know, just building a foundation of fitness so that you can build upon. Um, The problem is 
that training has to change. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if your programming looks like, you know, random moments or random movements picked out of a hat for 21.15.9 every day, uh, that's not necessarily driving us in the direction we need to go. What do you, a couple things. So you talked about acceleration. Are you utilizing things like Tendo units and things like that in, in your, in your uh, schemes and then also rest to work ratios? I know when I would train, I know, I know there's this belief that you know, like Tabata protocols. I always found the rest periods not conducive to high, you know, max output. I, I used to like to take longer rest periods. So it'd be 10, 15 seconds, all out sprint, rest two to three minutes to recover. So I could continually do that over and over again. Is that, does that make sense to you or, or, or? Yeah, the only way you get fast is by running as fast. There's no rest component in there. I remember Charlie said anything faster. Like if uh, if you're going to go out and run repeats, you got to run faster than 92 point, uh, I think it was 92% of your fast or as fast of your best time, let's say. And uh, anything slower then it's, you're going to be in that no man's land and that's definitely going to have adverse reactions. So whatever amount of time you need to rest to be able to run as fast as possible is what's ideal. Because the only thing the body knows is speed. Uh, I think... Um, people really got sold an interesting bag of goods with this idea of fitness as a replacement for speed and athleticism. And at the end of the day, man, like you can't thrust your way into a, you know, world, world record hundred meter time. And I was fortunate. I trained with a bunch of Olympic athletes and I was blown away. They would do about a 45 minute to an hour warm up, and then go out and run, you know, four or five, 400 meter runs and take 10 minutes in between each one. Cause they knew the only way they were going to get fast was by running fast. You know, yeah, and then there were days that were tempo runs and they would do some recovery stuff and just some like, you know, striders and their conditioning work. But like they protected that speed and that like high neural output, that really efficient stuff. Like they protected it like it was like, a, you know, the most precious thing on the world. And, uh, you know, just jogging 400 meters in between your you know kettlebell swings while good for conditioning isn't doing shit for developing your max top speed. Yeah, that's always a really interesting topic. I'll talk with coaching clients of mine about, especially when they're doing like VO2 max style workouts where I, I try to explain to them, like we're looking at this in the context of how much volume can you spend at that intensity? And if you can get more volume over the course of the week by taking this many you know, breaks in between or holding back and doing five instead of 10 reps on one day and ultimately you get more by the end of the week, you're going to have more volume spent at that intensity and that's going to move you forward long-term better than it will be if you can go out and do this, this Herculean workout all at once and maybe have the last two not even be in range because you already fell off after the eighth one or something like that. So the old dude I used to train with um, when I was 14 years old, I uh, wanted to lift weights. I had like a you know pencil neck that looked like this. With like My brother used to take an orange and he put a pencil underneath it and be like, here's your neck. And um, I remember the old power lifter who lived down the street from us. I used to, uh, I asked him to lift weights and he invited me to come in and lift weights. And, uh, he was a pretty world-class dude and like invented the super suits and the wraps. And I remember, uh, like the weights, you know, I was there for, I can't even remember like six months, a year or whatnot. And the weights are getting pretty heavy. And I was like, man, these weights are getting heavy. I'm like, it'd be so much easier if we just lifted the lightweights. And he was funny. He's like, you know, if the lightweights got us strong, why the hell would we mess with these heavy ones? And I thought that was pretty interesting because you always hear people argue and they're like, oh, you know, like um, you don't have to lift heavy weights and this. And he's like, man, like the heaviest people in the world lift the heaviest weights and they do it the most often. The person that can train at the highest intensity for the longest period of time is the strongest dude in the world. Just like in speed, the person that runs the fastest consistently over the longest period of time tends to be the person that is the fastest individual. And also there's a really interesting one. I'm not going to be able to cite this study because it's buried 
uh, within like all my stuff. And I had somebody hit me up the other day that they found a correlation between gold medal winners uh, and the 100 and 200 in body fat, that it was the, the leanest guys tend to win the 100. I think it was pretty, pretty high percentage. But the idea that, hey, they carry the most amount of lean body mass in relationship to, uh, uh, to body weight, you know, and you need a ton of, amount of muscle mass to be able to run that fast. Yeah, and you're dealing with a hundredth of a second with that, that specific event too. And then, you know, the 100 meter dash and, and the 200 too is always interesting to me because I find that to be one where you can almost assume that every kid at some point in their life in at least the developed areas if, you know, if, even not the undeveloped areas have had access to being able to run 100, 200 meter dash type stuff. So it's, there's not like a huge barrier to entry in terms of your exposure to that type of an activity. So by the time you get to the Olympic level with that, you've basically whittled it down from almost the entire population. And at that point you have like, you know, super athletes essentially. Sure. Oh yeah. You have outliers, but I always think it's, uh, it always, it, it's always amusing to me to, to see how the body types, I mean, obviously you say bolt through the whole fucking paradigm opting six, mm-hmm. five, you know, most of the guys were somewhere between like five, eight to five, 10 at, t- at most five eleven. But if you look at the body types, they're always all the same. And they're like, man, do they just genetically select? I'm like, no, you're a product of who you are. And it's like, uh, you know, you are what you eat. Like you are the result of what your training looks like. And, um, you know, there's also a lot of genetic adaptation and there's a lot of specificity in, within that. And, you know, just a lot of God-given gifts that are, you know, fostered and nurtured over a long period of time. What are your thoughts, uh, I guess, on, you know, when we talk about power development, speed, uh, Olympic lifting, full, full versus you know, high poles and things like that. Do you, do you feel any, there's any benefit to doing a full Olympic lift versus just doing the poles? Um, I've done all of it. Um, my strength coach in college with a guy named Todd Rice, all we did was snatch, clean and jerk and front squat and press. And um, I always liked the power variations of the movement because one, it was a longer pole. And also the, like the catch in the quarter squat was more reminiscent of what I did within the weight room or uh, out on the field in terms of sprinting. Um, and we always did so much squatting in our programs. I never really understood the desire to do a ton of full variations of the lifts. And then you also look at like, you know, big, strong dudes, tweaking elbows. Um, I had one of our athletes who uh, didn't get his elbow around fast enough and ended up driving in, into uh, his elbow, into his knee and breaking his thing. It was his alter. All of that. Yeah. All the, yeah. yeah. Breaking that knees out for six months. So uh, it just comes down to, for me, I think I can get more, development out of the power movements and I can out of the full variations. There's a really interesting kind of misconception that, and I think CrossFit kind of really was a big kind of breeder in this, the idea that like, if you're going to do something athletic in the athletic training space, it has to involve Olympic weightlifting. And I don't know where that came from because uh, the amount of NFL players and some of the best people that ever walked this planet that, that uh, have not done Olympic lifting is greater than those that have. Um, you know, most of the guys I saw do power cleans are very few, rarely ever saw people do full variations of the lifts. So I think what it comes down to, you know, and even look at like the West side barbell guys, I mean, they're not really doing any Olympic movements and those guys are super strong. So I think if you can Olympic lift, I think it's an incredible way to develop power and speed and, you know, absorb force and, um, you know, but I think, uh, let me think how else I put this. Um, you know, there's also a big component you think too, with the Olympic lifting in terms of developing eccentric loads, because everything they do, you know, big pull and then pull yourself under. So I kind of like the eccentric, uh, uh, the eccentric, adding eccentric movements into the Olympic lifts as well, but I like power variations, but if somebody can't Olympic lift, there's a ton of dynamic pulling that we can do to kind of, uh, um, supplement it. 
This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Carnivore Snacks. Carnivore Snacks is a startup company with a focus on providing convenience without compromise. With just two ingredients, meat and salt, Carnivore Snacks is bringing a wholesome snack to your pantry or travel bag. They created the company in order to bring awareness around regenerative agriculture by picking white oak pastures as their primary supplier. The texture of Carnivore Snacks is described as airy, crispy, crunchy, mimicking a chip. So if you want to say yes to sustainable meat, head over to Kickstarter and search Carnivore Snacks, that's snacks with an X, or head over to Instagram and search carnivore.snacks. Be sure to check out their ribeye, eye of round, and pork loin options. If you would like to hear more about the owner-creator of Carnivore Snacks, check out episode 95 of Human Performance Outliers, where we sat down with Sylvia Tabor and explored her health and nutrition journey. Links for all of this can be found in the show notes. Now, back to the show. You know, I guess, you know, listening, it sounds like the main people that you that are your clients tend to be, you know, strength, power, speed, explosive type guys. I know um, when I was doing throwing, I threw Highland games for uh, several years. And there's a guy, there's actually a guy in Austin, Texas named Mike Babb who played in the NFL, who I used to throw with. Uh, he was, I think he was with the Bengals for a while, the center for the Bengals. And, uh, but I mean, is that it's fair to say that's who most of your clients tend to be are these throwers, lifters, runners. Or no. Who do, who do you usually do? No, usually? I mean, we, we probably have somewhere, you know, four, 4,500 people around the world following our training programs. And they usually look like 26 to 45 year old dudes that want to be jack lifting weights in the garage. Uh, people come to us because they want to do not only the best training, but they also want the best information free of bullshit. Um, they just want to be big, strong and jacked and they want to be able to have really solid, uh, training foundations so that when their kids decide to lift weights, they don't fuck around for 10 years and hurt themselves with a bunch of bullshit. So I, um, I try to give everything. I mean, I have a, a pretty interesting strength background in that, you know, I've been doing this. I just turned 44 yesterday. So I've been doing this for 30 years since I was 14 years old and this is what I've done. And, uh, it's been my life. Um, you know, I wasn't going to play 10 years in the NFL without it. So, and then since. I retired from the NFL in 2009. I've done this. I mean, like I said, man, we traveled to every continent on this planet. I've taught hundreds of seminars. I think we've programmed in over, God, it was something crazy, like millions of workouts given uh, over the last 10 years. I mean, we traveled and met people at every seminar all over the world that had done our training programs. And there was things that were universal. Everybody that was able to do our training program that showed up to the seminar was dramatically better than the people that had been doing something else. When you say wasting time and the BS, what kind of stuff do you think that's out there that's BS? I mean, what are the people that are doing that's a waste of time? Uh, I think people um, like, um, you know, you're obviously familiar with inter and intramuscular coordination, just some of the basics of strength or strength training and like the really the beginning steps. You bring somebody in day one and I've, I've seen this happen in gyms. Uh, you bring in a kid who's never lifted weights and all of a sudden they bring the bar and it's doing everything this and this is the body finding coordination, which is really the first component of strength. And uh, they just throw them on a weight machine. You know, hey, that looks unstable. That doesn't look good. So what I think people do is they throw too much variety at beginners too early. Uh, you know, they throw periodization and they want to get way too fancy. I use just a basic linear, pre, uh, like a linear progression with most of our beginners. Um, and just very, very basic movements and everything else builds around that. You know, it looks like, um, hey, I'm going to squat, I'm going to deadlift, I'm going to press, I'm going to bench, I'm going to do some dynamic, I'm going to do some uh, plyometrics and a lot of Charlie, uh, Charlie Francis med ball work, and you're going to sprint and run. 
and you're going to rinse, rinse and repeat until you're really big and strong. And I remember we had a strength coach uh, come to our seminar and I remember I got an email from him four years later. One of his kids mentioned 535 for a triple. That kid went on, he played three years in college and now he plays in the NFL. And I remember hitting him back and being like, damn, like I never did that in my NFL career. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, exactly what you told me to the T. Now, obviously that kid was an outlier, but um, I really believe that if you can hit the individual at the right point, especially in that early maturation process with the right programming and not fucking around doing a bunch of other nonsense, I think kids really, really drive and, and the results are phenomenal. And we have hundreds of these kids and hundreds of athletes to prove it. So, yeah, I'm just interested. You, you know, you talked about the, the med ball work and I've been a huge fan of the med ball. And I, you know, when I, from a throwing background, when I learned how to throw, I mean, I find just, you know, doubles and triples as hard as you possibly can, uh, you know, accelerating. The nice thing is you can let go of it. So you, mm -hmm. you know, with, with, as compared to like with a snatch where you have to catch the bar, you can just launch it in the air, slam it against the wall as hard as possible. Is that, is that what you talk about when you mean med ball training or what are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm big on uh, different planes of motion. So, um, like, if you look at the CrossFit, everything is sagittal plane, bilateral hip hinging. So I'm really focused on, you know, are you on one leg? What does the rotation look like? And you can do a lot of transverse and a lot of rotation, a lot of frontal plane uh, movements with med balls really efficiently. And what I like about the med balls is that if they're lighter, you can overspeed them. And then there's a reactive force in catching them, which also helps with trunk stability. So, um, yeah, I mean... Uh, with some basic barbells, uh, you know, some, some jumping and a lot of med balls and, you know, maybe some kettlebells to swing just to help you, you know, trunk stability and learn how to use task specific tension. I think you can do a lot and just going out and sprinting. So, uh, it doesn't have to be complicated. The problem is, is that when most people look at training programs, they're looking at like, Hey, like what are the best people in the world doing? The problem though, is they're at the tip of this sphere. You know, if you're trying to, if you're a high school kid or you're a father or something, and you're trying to look to see what NFL players are doing, you've already fucking failed. You're, you, you're talking about genetic freaks that the only way they weren't going to get to the NFL is that they got hit by a bus. You know, I played with guys that did lift weights and still could bench 500 pounds. So uh, looking at that and when you're looking at like training programs that, you know, could probably involve a dude playing the snare drum for 30 minutes and getting strong. I think the problem is then you're extrapolating it out for kids who really aren't prepared for it. And uh, most of the programming and most of the stuff that I'm looking at is kind of intermediate to advanced. And it's all very, very self-serving. It's, hey, this is what I did and I'm pretty strong. Instead of looking at it and saying, okay, what does this person need at this point in their life? And then I being mean, able to kind of tune that up. Yeah, I think there's a reason the basics are called the basics and a lot of people <laughs> want to skip, skip past that. And I, you know, you, you spend, you know, you spend a decade, you know, getting strong or more, you know, in some yeah. cases, and then you can, then you can add some of the other stuff in there. Yeah. But a lot of people try to skip over that step. And I see these. People. Well, uh, the basics and the foundational stuff isn't sexy. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, like, I'm pretty sure you can pull all the research, but there's a direct correlation between the person that eats probably the most amount of protein carries the most amount of lean muscle. You know, I mean, even the vegans that I saw in that bullshit game changers deal, those guys are like, well, I'm a vegan and I'm a bodybuilder. And you're like, well, dude, you're also consuming like 600 grams of some obscure protein deal on a ton of drugs, which is helping with protein synthesis. So like, let's throw those guys out. I mean, just, uh, you know, like, man, I, uh, as the old man I used to train with said, I never saw anybody get strong out of a vending machine. And, um, you know, it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, the research, and we've had guys like Stu Phillips and Don Lame and some of the top protein researchers in the world, and it's, it's clearly protein is, is what drives muscle growth. Yeah, we had uh, Keith Barr on, the, on our podcast pretty recently. And, yeah, we, we, uh, we interviewed Keith too, yeah. Yeah, good Bye. guy.
he fucking like, like yeah. blew my mind in terms of like, well, I, I hit him up because I've always been really interested on this idea of an anabolic window. And I'm sure you guys have seen this where you, you know, the fucking teabag nation and all these morons of like, oh, the anabolic window is 30 minutes and this. And, you know, I always was super confused and that I never really met it or read anything conclusive about that. And then I hit up Keith Barr and he's like, well, it's because all the studies were done on older people. And the anabolic window is so important as you age, but for kids in their you know teens and their twenties, it could be 24 to 48 hours. So his explanation, the way that he worked back into it was really nice actually. And uh, helped me kind of with a lot of clarification. So. Yeah, I think it was Keith. It was, it was either Keith or maybe, maybe it was Don, but they, one of them had said, uh, that yeah the the huge step forward is just making sure you get enough protein or the right yeah. amounts and then if you're if you're looking to make some tiny little marginal increases beyond that then you can start looking at like you know getting an extra dose of protein in that like kind of three to four hour window on that time scale and but yeah most people it's, it's kind of like what you're saying with the training stuff they screw up the basics and jump right to some of these like kind of fringe type uh, like things that are going to move the needle very little especially if they don't have the foundation when in reality, most people probably just need to start focusing on getting enough protein in. And once they have that figured out and they maximize that, then they can start playing around with some of that more fine detailed stuff. I think it was 2004, 2000, it was 2003 or 2004. We got a bod pot at the Eagles and uh, we all threw a bunch of money in the pot for whoever would be the fattest, but also who could be the leanest. And uh, I remember years ago reading that um, if you ate enough protein in the caloric deficit, you would not lose any muscle. So I ended up uh, basically just eating ground beef for every meal for like the next like six or eight, six, eight weeks. And that was when I showed up at 306 at uh, 282 pounds of lean body mass at like, I think I was just like 7.8 or 8% body fat in the bod pod. And the dude was like, we've never tested anybody over 300 pounds under 10%. I was like, fucking let's juice this thing up. And I ended up winning a pretty sizable amount of money for it. But, and they were like, well, how'd you do it? I'm like, I was in a caloric deficit eating like 400 plus grams of protein a day. Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. My my diet is is probably four to five hundred grams of protein and not much else currently. You know, a little bit of fat. You know, just because you, you can't avoid a little bit of protein. Sure. Uh, uh, and and I'm as lean as I've been in my life. And you know, I'm still you know, I'm only about two thirty now, but I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to get a little lighter. But uh, it's it's yeah. I mean, I think that that clearly. Yeah. Uh, protein is a, is a huge thing. The other interesting thing we're seeing, and you know, I just read an article by Stu Phillips just put out, and it shows it, and it's not a new thing, but advanced trainer, you know, people that have been training longer, uh, you know, can do more protein than someone that's not advanced. And so what we see is when people start out, it's like 1.6 grams per kilo. Then when you get advanced, it's 2.2 or, or greater. And, you know, so you end up eating just a lot of protein as you get more advanced. And then, you know, as you know, some of the training adaptations, as you get, as you get stronger and fed, fitter and more advanced, you got to do more to, 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 to keep improving relative to the, to the, to the new guy. I, I always, and this is totally unproven, but I always, uh, this is just observation on my part. I always thought that taller people could digest more protein because you had a longer small intestine. So I was like, I'm six, six, so I can, I can, uh, you know, digest more protein than somebody that's five, six. Now, I don't know any basis for that. It's complete fucking conjecture and bullshit, but I just thought it was a funny one. Well, I mean, you're, you're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're just likely to be bigger. And if you're tall, you're going you're gonna to carry more structure. So, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, it just makes sense. And, yeah, our small intestine is, is where, all that, where all that happens. I mean, it's all... It's the window of the immune system. That's really our first bus stop in getting yeah. all the nutrients out. Yep, exactly. So what, um, what is your personal training? I mean, are you... Are you 
personally, what are you doing these days? Are you looking to compete in stuff? Or are you just training to be, you know, the best you can be, the fastest you can be, strongest you can be? How does your personal training look like? Um, my shoulder was really fucked up. I'll, I'll give a little bit of honesty on this. Um, I, you know, obviously playing 10 years in the NFL, my shoulder was pretty beat up. And then I started doing the CrossFit stuff. And I remember one day we were fucking around doing bar muscle ups and I kind of twisted off the bar and I thought I, I actually, I tore my infraspinatus, supraspinatus and my rotator cuff. And, uh, they were pretty well, uh, I thought they were torn. I went, I got an MRI and the doctor told me they were torn and I figured, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to rehab it. I'm, I'm not really into surgery. Um, I've had too many of them and I never felt like they made me better. So I just rehabbed it and I started losing range of motion. So I went from like full range of motion to all of a sudden, if I was like at like a Nazi rally, they probably like wouldn't have thrown, they would have thrown me out because I couldn't get my hand any higher than this, which is my joke, which I don't know if it's not really that funny now seeing as how people, you know, I'm like, huh. um, so don't mind my bad humor. But the other one is I couldn't put my hand behind my back. So the other joke I say is like, man, if I ever get arrested, I just hope they shoot me because there's no way they're going to get my hands behind my back. And so I started just losing range of motion and uh, I just kept training and I just didn't worry about it. And then I finally got to the point where uh, the only thing I could do is bench and like, you know, do a bunch of dumbbell work. And I remember I benched like four or five for a set of five, probably four or five months ago. And I remember thinking like, I got to do something. Uh, I had met a doctor, Dr. Ants, who's the head of regen at uh, Dr. Andrew's place down in Pensacola. And Dr. Ants and I are friends when I did a speaking engagement for this DARPA funded research group, um, Ken Ford's group. And uh, man, we just hit it off. And he had been one of Stedman's um, fellows and Stedman's the guy that had done my uh, all my knee surgeries. So I hit him up and I was like, hey, doc, I, I got to get this thing fixed. And so I flew into Pensacola and he scoped my shoulder. He shaved about, I think, a centimeter off of my AC joint on the acromial, is that the acromial head? And then uh, cleaned it all up. I had a bunch of nasty osteophytes that were really limiting me. And um, he pulled out a bunch of, you know, what he called just junk, uh, a bunch of spurs and a bunch of uh, de- um bunch of just garbage. And then he found that from the MRIs, they thought that my infraspinatus, supraspinatus and rotator cuff were all torn, but it was actually only on top that the insertions were real thick. So everything was still connected down, you know, underneath. And so he went and cleaned all that up and uh, got me out of surgery. And it was crazy. Like the next day after surgery, I had more range of motion than I had coming in. And what was nice is they did like a nerve block in my neck. So we didn't use any drugs. And, uh, I started rehabbing that. So I've been basically just rehabbing my shoulder and trying to fight for this range of motion. And the problem that I've been dealing with is um, it, the posterior capsule is presenting like a frozen shoulder. So it's like the, it's really thick and fibrous. So I've been working on that a ton. So really just my daily goal right now is to try to figure out how to get this shoulder to open up. And that was why we were talking to Keith Barr because he had some really interesting stuff in terms of loading tissues and how to fix it. So he wrote me a little protocol that I've been doing. So I've been trying to just get my shoulder fixed, um, still continue to lift weights and train. And then uh, really my stuff is um, I got a, uh, I like to hunt. So I got a bow hunting deal that we're supposed to do in August. Uh, that should be pretty legit. So I just try to train for that type of stuff and try to give myself something a little bit different out of the standard paradigm. But it's really just stay strong and, you know, continue to be able to actually do my own training so that I'm just going to become those uh, really interesting individuals that are hypocritical and say, Hey, this is what you should do, but I can't do it myself. So I guess uh, just don't want to be disingenuous in that way. 
I was going to say, it's always nice to be able to walk the walk, you know, instead of just talking it. But uh, what do you find for conditioning? I mean, you know, obviously, uh, both, I think both are important. I don't know if, I mean, obviously, you can do the, the lifting, the explosive lifting. Are you doing anything for like sprinting or, I mean, I find these kind of like airdyne bikes to be yeah. pretty invaluable oh. for, for metabolic condition, for, for just cranking it, you know, going hard. I think those are yeah. great. Oh yeah, no, I, I have a, um, we have a state, a skier. I got, I, I have a full gym. So I was, you know, we've been social distancing for the last three years since we got here to Texas. Like I have a full gym at my place and this is my uh, office. So I built a barn on our property and have, uh, you know, my office and all my employees show up here every day. So, um, yeah, we have uh, assault bikes, we got an echo bike, um, you know, C2 rower, uh, ski erg, and then I have a hill that I graded in the back of our building that we sprint. So we try to base um, anything that looks like kind of longer duration kind of sprint work, like uh, 300 calories for time, 20 minutes max calories, that type of stuff is really done on the bikes. And then try to get out there and just do a ton of, uh, try to run the back hill as many times as we can within a certain amount of time. So I find that that type of stuff, if I'm gonna do anything long in that way, uh, is usually done on the bike and then anything that looks like short, you know, short duration, big horsepower, big sprint stuff is usually done in the back on the hill. Yeah. I think, uh, was it Walter Payton was a big, uh, hill guy. I mean, I remember he yeah. was one of my, as a kid growing up in the Chicago area, he was one of the, one of the few athletes I used to look up to and, you know, and, and then I kind of, kind of just stopped idolizing athletes later in life. Cause I was like, I'm too busy training myself to care about that stuff. But did you ever watch the YouTube video of, uh, of that they put out where they went back in the, the hill that they, that he had built, uh, that he would run had sandbags. And I want to say it was like through a Creek or something, but there's a whole video on YouTube about it. I and know then they down in Mississippi, I think if that's where, yeah. Yeah. And then the hilarious part was he talked about it and then they went back out there and they had demoed it and since built homes, but he had talked about it. They went and showed like where the hill was and all that. It was a pretty cool story of just, you know, a guy working with what he has to do and wanting to be the best. Yeah, no, that was, uh, and, and that's, that's a great, great uh, uh, way to train too. And I, I'm a big fan of those hill, hill sprints. I mean, I think they're just, you know, they're, they're, extremely effective for that sort of well they're metabolically taxing and you can't sprint poorly up a hill i mean that's one thing like we've you know i've taught people how to sprint we've worked i've worked with nfl players getting ready for the combine i mean in the last 10 years i mean we've, we've worked with so many people and the one thing that's universal is nobody sprints poorly uphill you know because they have to get a good chest lean they have, they have to lift their legs up they have to get a ton of knee drive and uh you know if you sprint poorly up a hill you just don't sprint so it, it's really become an interesting tool for us it's great. So where I built my building uh, on our property, uh, I graded the back. So I'm pretty decent with dirt work. I can work like a skid steer and all that. And so I ended up kind of grading it with kind of a, I'm sure there's some bumps in there, but uh, we have a pretty nice little, probably 35, 40 yard sprint uphill up to the building. So it's pretty good. I, I love using the hill stuff for sprints, especially early in training plans or for beginners too, because this like they can get that heart rate way up there without having to take on the load that you're going to have like running slightly downhill or on the flats too. And just avoid some of those maybe early, early season tweaks that kind of flare up on you a little bit when you're starting something back up for, after being off of it for a while. Sure. Hey folks, I have some exciting news to share. HPO podcast wants to reward some of our regular listeners and supporters. So we have partnered up with some companies to offer a monthly raffle for all our Patreon and PayPal donors. It's simple. Donate as little as one US dollar per month to automatically enter. 
For every dollar you donate, we'll qualify you for a raffle ticket. At the end of the month, the raffle will be drawn and winners announced. Ultra Footwear is going to be giving away a free pair of shoes for our U.S. listeners. Ultra Footwear makes shoes that are shaped like feet, have balanced cushioning, and build their shoes specifically to the anatomy of male and female feet. They call it their Fit for Her system. So check them out at ultrarunning.com. That's ultra with an A, running.com. S-Fuels provides a series of low-carb, high-fat endurance and lifestyle products that are designed with the help from World Ironman Age Group Champion Dr. Dan Plews, six-time Hawaii Ironman triathlete Dave Scott, and now myself. You can check out some of their educational material at sfuelsgolonger.com and also my collaboration with S-Fuels at sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash Zach. Sean and Zach will also be raffling off a free 20-minute consult each with minimum two weeks notice. So head over to paypal.me forward slash HPOPod or patreon.com forward slash HPOPodcast to support the show. What do you, I mean, you know, Zach is a, a hundred mile runner. I mean, do you think any of this stuff sounds you awful? Yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> do you think that it, I mean, obviously it's a lot of, he's, he's obviously got a lot of type one fibers, but is there oh, anything, fuck. anything that you would, you would advise Zach? I mean, Zach's, I mean, he's a world record holder, so it's tough to. <laughs> Prozac, Thor, is he? I mean, uh, I, that's what I was going to recommend. <laughs> do you think there's any applications to what you're doing to distance runners? Is that, is there, is that just point? I think people, um, I think strength is the platform of which everything's built. Um, I think, uh, you know, everybody should lift weights, you know, it doesn't matter if it looks like grandma or whoever, I think lifting weights is really important. The problem is, is that when you start getting more and more to the peak of this, you know, tip of the spear, let's say when you start getting into this, you know, deal where you're, where you're setting world records, um, the only way you're going to do that is by uh, being very, very specific and very smart in your training. You're just not going to happen to fucking walk into something like that like no but like I, I always think it's pretty funny when you're like oh i had never run 100 miles and i went out and i won the western states and you're like <laughs> that doesn't like like that story doesn't happen mm-hmm. you know those guys that win that type of stuff or you see the, the kenyans that run these races look like uh, a set of lungs with with a set of shoes underneath it i mean these guys have mm-hmm. huge lungs and they're just you know genetically selected to be able to do what they do but also um there's a really cool intersection of like genetically gifted uh, people that all of a sudden intersect with, you know, really advanced, really hard, very practically good training. And I think, um, well, I'd say, Hey, you know, would Zach benefit from lifting weights? Yes, but not at the detriment of what he does. If it prevents him from running as fast as he can or, or putting the amount of time and training and volume in, uh, then I think it becomes secondary. Um, but I think that there's definitely a point where, you know, strength becomes important just for everything. You know, you just definitely more durable. The guys that I know that lifted weights, through the season tend to be more durable over time, uh, you know, and uh, you, you just kind of see it. Like, I mean, there's just certain things like, at least for us, like uh, people that lift weights tend to be more durable. The people that tend to eat more protein carry more muscle mass. And the people that, and I'm sure Doc, you know this, that if you look at the actuary charts, the people that carry the most amount of lean body mass tend to live the longest. Yeah, I mean, that's clear. I mean, muscle mass yeah. is, a, is a, muscle mass is an organ of longevity for sure. I think that's, and it's kind of funny when I see people saying that, 
being strong and fit has nothing to do with health. And I'm like, of course it does. I mean, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous that people would say that, but yeah. I mean, Zach, Zach lifts, I know Zach's lifts quite a bit, you know, and so he's not, he doesn't ignore the strength part. And that's probably one of the reasons he, one of the guys that's doing. Yeah. Him. And I think it's just like strength for, for an ultra marathon or, or even any endurance that just maybe looks a little different in where it fits within the primary sure. stuff. I think even when you look at like, Arthur Lydiard's kind of training progression for marathoning and sub-marathoning, you know, they're going to do a strength component in the beginning of the year that's going to have hill running in some fast sprints even early on in the training. And that's kind of putting yourself in a position to, to kind of, you know, like you said, have the, the, the frame to be able to handle the training load that's coming up. But yeah, once you get into the, once you get to the, the thick of the training schedule, then you start kind of uh, prioritizing doing the things that you're going to have to do on race day, which is in my case, running very long and very slow relative to what you can do in, especially in like a sprint. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it, the hardest thing I think for endurance athletes with strength training in the more traditional sense, like in the gym is, you know, a lot of the strength stuff, you have to be kind of consistent with it. So mm -hmm. like if I go and, you know, start a really good strength program early on in the year and then just, phase it out during the second half of my training season, then it's like, I probably lost a lot of the benefits from it uh, by the time I get to the race side. So I, I try to kind of keep it within reason where, like you said, exactly like you said, actually, where I ask myself, well, how is this going to affect my key workout? And if the answer is it's going to negatively impact it, I don't do it. If it's not going to, and it's just going to potentially help me stay stronger and healthy and more resilient, then, then I'm going to work it in. And, and that actually ends up looking like, uh, probably more foundational stuff than people imagine. I think a lot of times people think, okay, endurance runners in the gym. Well, and a lot of them do it too. They get in there, they're going to do like a hundred sit-ups, maybe some push-ups, maybe an assisted pull-up or two. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, no, like, and then they're out. But Well, we but, um, years ago, I got approached by a Aussie rules football team strength coach about helping him developing some programming. And I was just, you know, coming from American football, very unfamiliar with Aussie rules football. So he sent me a bunch of videos. And like the first thing I was blown away by, I'm like, what's the volume of running that you guys are doing each practice or like within the game? And he's like, Oh, you know, some guys run between five and 10 kilometers per game. I'm like, okay, well, what does the standard training look like? And it was all like classic bodybuilding, you know, three to four sets, eight to 12 reps of like kind of medium weights. And I'm like, so you guys are out there running for a couple hours, you know, five to 10 kilometers in these big sprints and you have this huge volume base and yet you go in the gym and you're doing this nonsense. And um, they're like, yeah, I'm like, dude, I think that's why you guys are getting hurt. You guys aren't doing anything in that upper register. And I ended up writing them a program that looked like, you know, singles, doubles, and triples, a bunch of post-activation post potentiation, PAP training. Um, and, you know, everything looked like, you know, move something heavy, single, double, or triple, and then go on and do something dynamic. And all of a sudden, uh, the injury rate in that team, which was about 20, 22, 25%, went down to like three. And all of a sudden, they like shot up and were like the best team. And I remember when I sent the guy the program, he calls me. Uh, on a Skype and it's like, I'm going to get fucking fired when I show them this program because it's so different than what they're saying. I'm like, well, yeah, but like the problems that you're telling me and I think what we've seen is that, um, you know, Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different response. And I'm telling you, this is going to work. And next thing you know, he's heralded as a genius. So uh, that was a very, very cool piece. But I think the problem is that everybody's stuck within this paradigm of what the other person's doing and people are really afraid to break out of it. And, um, I just kind of always looked at things in terms of energy systems. You know, what does your training look like? Um, if you're doing that much on the, on the field, then why come in the weight room and do 
you know, this type of stuff. So, you know, for the endurance runners and the guys that are out there, they come in and they're probably doing, you know, sets of hundred on everything, but yet they're going out running. So I just do some more upper register, higher percentage, more intensity type stuff. And then just let you go out and run. And if it negatively affects your running, then you cut back the volume. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like people tend to recover better from intensity than they do volume. You know, volume, I think, becomes the massive crushers, which we, we've seen in the CrossFit deal, where it's just like, fuck, the volume of these workouts just ends up just fucking grinding people into the earth. Yeah, I think there's a difference when we talk about strength versus hypertrophy. And, you know, I think, you know, for, for most of these athletes, what, they, what they're trying to get is strength, and they don't necessarily have to have a ton of hypertrophy. Obviously, if you're an NFL lineman, you know, you're, you're going to have to be as big as the next guy. But, I mean, for the most part, uh, we see these power to power to weight ratios and strength ratios for most performance guys. And so that's where you're training at those higher intensity, lower rep ranges that uh, you know, I think develop that a little bit better. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, theoretically a larger muscle, larger cross-sectional size of a muscle should be able to support more weight. But at the end of the day, like whatever allows you to be the most efficient, like if you're going to go out and try to row a world record, it's probably not going to help you to be 300 pounds. Um, you know, I remember the first time I went out and rode 500 meters, uh, I think my best was like a minute 13, 500 meters and I almost fucking died. I like fell off the rower with my feet still hooked on it. And, um, you know, and I just, it was like a ton of power output, but you know, Hey, it was like just over a minute. I can suffer for that long, but you know, be able to stand up and in 90 seconds or two minutes, go do that again. There was no way. So I think uh, there's definitely a sweet spot for the amount of lean body mass that you carry in relative. I just think, uh, at least for me, you know, the, the, the most amount of lean body mass that I can carry and the leanest I can be tends to be where I, I perform the best and I feel the best. I don't feel very good with a ton of excess body fat. So, which is crazy because I see people, oh, you know, love me at any size and this whole, you know, big is beautiful and, you know, we shouldn't shame people. And I'm like, God damn. I'm like, they must feel like dog shit. I mean, you know how oxidative fat is. Uh, you know, how it messes everything up. And I'm like, dude, it's just, I can't imagine rocking through life like that. It just must, it must feel fucking terrible. Like when I was, I remember when I got hurt and I was still 300 pounds and I'd like, um, I couldn't really get out of bed for three months after I ruptured my patellar tendon. So I had a uh, uh, mid patellar rupture where I tore the retinaculum and they didn't let me bend my knee for three months. And I didn't really move around too well for three, uh, for those three months. And yeah, I mean, my body fat went up and uh, I felt awful. Like the first thing when I started training, I was like, man, I literally cut calories and was doing as much aerobic work as I could just to develop a base just so I could get my body fat down and actually start feeling better. And the minute that it went down, instantly my training started getting better. So I just can't imagine being in that oxidative state. Have you seen, uh, you know, since your time with CrossFit, have they changed their sort of training methodology uh, more in line to what you think it should be? Or are they still kind of, uh, you know, doing things you, you disagree with? Um, I think I virally infected CrossFit as Greg Glassman screamed at me at dinner one time that I virally infected CrossFit. So before I came to CrossFit, there was just one workout. And uh, now when you walk into any CrossFit gym and the majority of CrossFit program you see, there's multiple workouts. One of them looks like a strength component and usually a conditioning component. Are you familiar with that? That didn't exist before I came in and before CrossFit football. So I was told that CrossFit football virally infected the CrossFit community into teaching or, or making people believe that they needed to be strong. And people were way more excited to be powerful than they were to be elite. So that was a Greg Glassman screaming at me saying this. And I was like, yes, 
Exactly. I'm, I'm stoked that I virally infected and saved all these people and taught them that it's really good to lift weights because I really think that's the benefit of this stuff. Conditioning is conditioning. I mean, you can do that all day long, but at the end of the day, uh, I believe the strength component is the platform on which all this stuff is built. So I think we, um, the work that I did really altered the trajectory of this stuff. And if you go look at the CrossFit Games or any of the stuff that they've done in recent years, it always looks like it involves something heavy. And that didn't really exist before I started my stuff. So I think what they've done is they've kind of tapered because they realize that's what people want to do. People want to see people lift big heavy weights. Nobody wants to sit there as a spectator and watch somebody row a marathon. I mean, it's awful. Like, why do that? But yet they're, everybody's going to get in there and cheer to see what people do, you know, what arm snatches and do heavy type movements because that stuff's exciting. So I, um, I mean, since uh, we kind of peeled out of the CrossFit market a couple of years ago, um, you know, we still work with a ton of CrossFit gyms. And I think the problem is that um, there's some really interesting foundations and some really key components of strength conditioning and some, some great sports scientists that have done a lot of great work that unfortunately CrossFit has just kind of stepped aside and said, you know, there's no contribution by anybody in the sports science market of any value. And I think what we've done a good job of is highlighting people like Charlie Francis and some people that have done it better and trained some of the world's best for a lot of years. What are your thoughts on frequency of training? I mean, do you, do you, I mean, there's some people that say, you know, you can, uh, you can train a muscle group every single day and get results. There's some people that say, you know, it's twice a week. What do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think certain, I, I, I think um, it's not systemic. Uh, maybe it is. Um, I had a theory uh, that came from a long discussion I had with Dr. Romanoff, who's the guy that invented the post stuff, uh, which we ended up morphing into what we call big monkey, small monkey. And what it was that there was uh, some very set metabolic pathways and some very real kind of components of within the system that allow certain people to handle volume and others that probably don't handle volume as well. So football is a sport that naturally selects for people that can handle a ton of volume and uh, at least as an offensive lineman, but yet you see quarter uh, positions like a quarterback, for example, I knew certain quarterbacks that could only throw a hundred times in practice. And there was other quarterbacks that could throw 400 times in practice. I remember one of the quarterbacks, I'm not going to name him, but they had a dude with a little counter that would count every single rep that he threw and knew exactly how many reps he could throw. Anything more than that, his shoulder would get sore and his production would go down. Hmm. So I think for my position, especially offensive defensive line and those kind of uh, inside the box, more violent positions, you have to be able to handle a high amount of volume. And uh, I'll just give you an example. When I was in college, um, one of the guys that came in uh, my, in my draft class or my recruiting class, um, he had, I think he had benched 450 in high school and squatted 600 or 700 pounds. And he was like 300 pounds, big, strong dude. Over the course of five years, I think he went from a 450 bench down to like a 295 bench. And he got weaker every single day he was there. And I remember like, he was, he ended up being my roommate and I'm like, dude, what happened? You were a beast a couple years ago. And he's like, it's too much training. He goes in high school, we trained two, three days a week at most. And I felt my strongest. Like we train twice a day, five, six days a week here. And he goes, I just feel beat up. I never feel recovered. I feel awful. And I just don't. And that was really the first kind of light bulb that went on when I realized here was a guy that was, you know, potentially could have gone in and played in the NFL if he had been in the right system. But by the end of those five years, he was a broken little, you know, got sent off to the island of misfit toys, you know, but for me, I was always kind of a big monkey in that I could handle a ton of volume. Um, I also think if you look at individual kind of type movements and some of the fiber types, uh, I think the more fast twitch fibers, you know, within a muscle group, I think the, uh, you know, the, the frequency goes down. Like, for example, 
if you're going to big build or build big calves, you probably got to train them every single day in high rep ranges. Um, you know, I, I found that, you know, the shoulders could handle more volume in the chest. So I used to do a lot of overhead work two or three days a week, but I only benched heavy one day a week just because I knew that like, you know, every seven days was pretty good for me to do on my uh, horizontal pressing, but anything vertical pressing, it only went up when I trained two or three days a week. Uh, I only pulled heavy one day a week, but I could squat two or three uh, times a week. So what I found was that there were certain movements and certain parts that really biased those body types or uh, those body parts that could handle more volume in certain things than others could. So, and I yeah. just kind of periodized the training on that. In, in the NFL, like I think that was an awesome description, by the way, of just kind of just the selection process. But how, how accommodating has the NFL gotten with like recognizing, okay, this person's a talent, but they maybe need a different type of training in order for us to kind of get them to be able to produce on the field versus we've got such a wealth of talents that we're just going to have the system that we think is the best system. And if you don't fit in that, you're going to eventually fall off. Uh, there's two types of places, man. There's a lot of places that try to jam square pegs into round holes. And there's other places that have a whole bunch of different shapes to try to fit in many people in. And, um, I think the, the Patriots do it better than anybody else in that regard. I remember when I went to the Patriots, I went in their weight room and they had something for everybody. They had bell squat machines, they had free weights, leg presses. I mean, anything, any type of training that you wanted to do was available in that space. And I, you know, I come from a, you know, basic compound movements, Olympic lifting background. And so I roll over and they got all this like beautiful Alico stuff, like brand new bars, platforms. And I like pull my shoes out of my bag and I start warming up and their strength coach like sticks his head out the window, uh, out the door and gets all excited, comes running up because he hadn't seen anybody actually use any of that stuff in years. <laughs> Most of the guys just want to go over and fucking get on the leg press. And, um, and then it was funny when I went to go bench, I remember he's like, what are you going to hit for bench? And I was like, I got to do like, um, I got to do like a descending ladder of four or five. And then I'm going to go up and I'm going to do that for five. And I'm going to go up and four. And I want to do like four and probably like four ten. And then I kind of gave him this whole thing and he was okay. Call me when you get there. And then sure enough, when I went over there, I put four or five, they had to, uh, um, they had to have one guy spotting one guy on either side. And then they would only let me do a board press because they'd had so many guys hurt their pecs benching heavy. And I was like, man, like, I was like, this is, uh, this isn't heavy weight. Um, you know, when I just kept on playing at the Chiefs where I watched, you know, Willie Rofe and uh, Will Shields and um, uh, Brian Waters and these guys bench, you know, 500 plus pounds for reps, like it was nothing. So it was really interesting to see just kind of the difference, you know, and those guys are all in the Hall of Fame too. So, um, but yeah, I think the guys, the teams that do it really well and the teams that win are the ones that are like, oh, square peg, let's put you in a square hole. Round peg, let's put you in a round hole. Opposed to just trying to jam a bunch of square pegs and round holes, which is, I think, when you look at the teams that are absolute dog shit, it's what they end up doing. You know, and uh, I also think, too, the teams that want to win and the teams that want to spend the money and actually have legacy more so than just uh, trying to balance a balance or trying to you know be in the black with their balance sheet uh, is really when you look at the winners and the losers. Just one other topic, you know, cause you talked about recovery, you know, and, and, and volume. Do you find that nutrition plays a significant role in recovery and how so, if, if so? Um, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've had this many times where, you know, you go and you have a crushing workout and the next day you go in the gym and you're like, man, I'm not feeling it. And then you realize you probably under ate that day. Uh, you know, and I think that's pretty, pretty one-to-one that if you don't eat, it's extremely hard, um, hard to perform at a high level. Um, 
The one thing though that's pretty interesting, and we see this in the fitness world, you see it in the CrossFit world, where I think uh, you know a lot of these girls, maybe guys too, are eating probably like 400 total calories a day and yet posting all these workouts. And like, I just think they just tend to hide some exercise anorexic individuals. But um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a big correlation between what you eat and uh, you know, because you really only have two mechanisms for it: you got sleep and you got food. Those are the only two allies allies I'm going to have in the recovery space. So if my sleep is poor and my, my diet's poor, I don't know what chance I have. Yeah, one of the things, and this is back to the, you know, you kind of talk about the, the veganism thing. And I, and I, I suspect, because I see guys, you know, you talk about these genetic freaks in the NFL. These guys are walking around at 6% body fat. Um, and they have, if you look at their diet, and they, they eat McDonald's. I mean, they're eating garbage. Yeah. And, you know, then they go vegan and they're like, well, I feel better, you know. So, I mean, is, that, is there some of that going on? Yeah, it's, uh, I played with a dude named Al Harris. Uh, Al used to take chicken McNuggets and like um, roll them in salt and drink like a Coke. And he was like so, so lean he could see his heartbeat, you know, through his chest. He was probably like, you know, 3% body fat. And I remember he'd be like, oh, you guys are doing all this. And I'm like this. And I'm like, give it time, motherfucker. Genetics catches up with everybody and a shitty diet catches up with everybody. You're going to be fucking diabetic and fat when you're older eating like this. You know, like the guys, like they used to deliver, when I was in Kansas City, they used to deliver boxes of Krispy Kremes, like a hundred boxes every week. And like, I just walk by and be like, fuck man, don't eat that stuff. You eat a Krispy Kreme, you end up looking like a Krispy Kreme. So, you know, I always loved like the Jack LaLanne stuff. Uh, you know, his stuff was so basic. Like if it didn't grow out of the earth and it's not one ingredient, you know, uh, I think that works. But I think the problem, and this is comes down to training, it comes down to nutrition, that when you look at the world's best athletes, you can't develop training programs and nutrition like there's just no credibility with it because they're actually succeeding in spite of all this nonsense. You know, and you also know that, um, I don't know, are you guys familiar with uh, Michael Rose? Um, he's the uh, evolutionary biologist out of uh, UC Irvine. I've, he spoke I've at AHS. Name. Yeah, he spoke at AHS a couple years ago. Uh, he has a great talk on, uh, at AHS on uh, the research he did with fruit flies. And he was able to extrapolate all some really interesting stuff through these fruit flies. Um, but what they found is that a fruit fly lives about seven days, which, you know, they classified about one day within a fruit fly. Uh, fruit fly life is about, you know, 10 years within a human, if you're going to extrapolate that. But what they found was that they were able to, you know, go take a, a, I think it was like fruit flies out of Maine that had like, you know, been in this apple orchard that had been there for hundreds of years, brought them back to California, kept this uh, amount of fruit flies and then start segmenting out and feeding them different diets and their health in terms of however they were monitoring it within, I think it was like flight patterns, breeding, whatever it looked like was pretty consistent through day four. And then after day four, the, the fruit flies that ate their ancestral diet were fine. The ones that didn't did this. And so Michael Rose's talk talked about that at, you know, after the age of 40, everybody has to return back to their ancestral diet or you're just going to see a ton of these problems. So you have a bunch of individuals who are in their 20s. And as you guys know, I mean, I'm sure for you too, I could eat whatever I want. I was lean and felt great. And all of a sudden you hit like 40 and you're like, shit, I've been eating really clean. I've been sleeping. And man, this is still a motherfucker to stay in shape. And uh, that talk by Michael Rose was really, really impactful. He's got a bunch of books on aging. Uh, I remember Rob Wolf had him on his podcast. And I remember Robbie called me and was like, man, uh, I think like whatever room that dude's sitting in, he's probably been the smartest dude for a long, long time. And if you look at his deal, he's in his sixties, the guy looks super fit and, uh, you know, looks super young, 
But I really think the problem and with that game changers deal is, yeah, I mean, those guys are eating absolute dog shit. They're eating the worst diets imaginable. Then all of a sudden you remove all that stuff and you give them something that looks like actually real food. Of course, they're going to feel better. The problem is for how long? Um, I'll tell you this. Uh, I would love to play against any dude that was a vegan. If I knew a dude was a vegan, I was like, I'm going to fucking wear this dude out. And it just 100%, man, I just knew that they weren't going to ever take the punishment. They weren't going to be able to take the duration. And they were so, they sure as hell weren't going to be able to take the punishment I was going to give them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the nice thing about this movie, this Game Changers movie, is, you know, these athletes are trying and failing miserably. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing Damn these Newton. guys. Yeah, exactly. Cam Newton. And, and yeah, he went vegan and now he's a fucking free agent. They couldn't get rid of his ass fast enough. Yeah, I think that's uh, we'll see more and more of that as these guys, and hopefully they'll wake up. And that's probably maybe they shot themselves in the foot with that because these athletes, you know, these people that are pushing the envelope physically. When you see what happens when you're on an inferior nutrition pro, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, scheme, it it just falls apart. And it may take six months, it may take eighteen months, but it seems to inevitably happen. You know, and these athletes that are that are doing this, uh, you know, over and over again. I'm sure. You, I don't know if you were able, when you were playing, if it was much going on very often, but yeah, no, I, uh, I was, you know, best man at Tony Gonzalez's wedding and he had a bout with Bell's palsy and went to some fucking guru who told him that it was the meat that, that gave it to him. So he went on this vegan diet. And, uh, I remember being like, dude, I don't think you should do this. Like, I just, I'm telling you, man, like, uh, there isn't any, and this is, you know, 15 years ago. And I remember telling him, like, there isn't any compelling research for me to, for me to support this. Um, if you look at, like, you know, and you go back and um, I went to Berkeley and I was a rhetoric major and um, ended up doing a bunch of nutrition uh, work and, like, would have loved to have done more. But unfortunately, all the labs were in the afternoon and that's when I played football. But, um, you know, there was just very, very, very few compelling stories in any research that really supported it. And I was like, man, like the people that tend to eat the most amount of meat tend to carry the most uh, amount of lean body mass and the people that tend to be stronger. I'm like, you know, but then they're like, oh, well, there's this one guy. And I'm like, ah, and they did a great job of uh, in Game Changers of digging up the one dude, you know, and then skewing it like, um, you know, but they kind of lost me. We, I, I watched it. And then the, the strongman guy was like, people ask how you're strong as an ox without eating meat. He's like, you ever seen a meat eat, or an ox eat meat? And I'm like, oh, Jesus. I'm like, okay, so we got ruminants. Like, this guy doesn't even understand it. And I was like, at that point, I was like, this whole thing's a fucking fraud. Yeah, that was a that was a pretty pretty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the aging thing is interesting too. When you say like, you know, you can get away so much until you're 40, and then you have to really, really dot your eyes and cross your t's. And I mean, you you I get there's other variables at play here, but I mean, when you're talking about professional sports, oftentimes that late 30s or mid late 30s, early 40s is when that starts to fall off. So, like, mm -hmm. how much do you think that is? Or I guess maybe the way to look at it is how much can you push that window back by dialing in your nutrition early? versus you know just eating whatever is brought in whether that be 100 boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts or whatever else gets brought in I, I think the change that you're seeing in the NFL is a changing in the rules so um, I wish I was 10 years younger uh, I could have played 20 years in this NFL the NFL that you're seeing today isn't the NFL that I played in when I came in in 99 when I retired in 09 uh, the game that I played was an extremely violent very aggressive game where it wore dudes out and guys were lucky to make 10 years now it's like, fuck it, like the way, like they, I remember when I was in training camp as a rookie, we were in training camp 42 days. 
we would go pads in the morning, pads at night, pads in the morning, and then we had the afternoon off. So we had basically three practices in pads every two days for 40, for, it was actually for 42 days. Just that volume. I mean, now they only go pads three days in training camp, the entire training camp, they're in pads three days, three practices. And then the only time they're in pads during the week is on Sunday. And if you look at the quarterbacks and you look at the hitting, like, um, I don't know if you guys still watch the Super Bowl, but you're watching, you know, Mahomes out there, like running out on the sideline, cutting back into the, um, into the field of play. When I played, if the runner, if the quarterback was running to the sideline, it was for his dear fucking life. So he didn't get killed. If he took a step and tried to go vertical or back in the field, he would get absolutely murdered. And that would be the end of his career. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you watch uh, Tiki Barber and you watch all those running backs. What did they do? They were running the sideline to save their lives because the game was violent. Mm-hmm. Now they can't hit to the head. The guys aren't nearly hitting as much. And it's just there's not nearly the abuse that the guys were taking. I mean, the, the game that we played was just it was like a road grader. And I think I get out the other end of that and being able to play 10 years is a great accomplishment. Uh, when I look at this game, I'm like, fuck, like I could have played way longer. And then the other one is, is just seeing the lack of physical development. Um, you know, I played with a lot of really big, strong dudes and just seeing the, the physiques and the way guys look today just really kind of surprises me. And so I just don't know if they're doing curls or, you know, I mean, we always hit a ton of strength work with a lot of bodybuilding just because I figured the more muscle I could carry, the more armor I had on me. And, um, you know, and it's also, if you're going to wear a tight cut, high cut jersey, it's nice to have a big set of arms to hang out of it. <laughs> Well, John, this has been great. Um, I tell you what, we've kept you an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh, oh, I think this. I is, thought we'd been talking ten minutes. <laughs> no, it's been, we could probably go for another three hours. Unfortunately, I got to go do do some stuff. And uh, um, can you let people know how to find find more about you, where where you're located, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, man, I'm easy to find. Uh, I'm on social media at John Wellborn. Um, you can find me at, if you Google Power Athlete or website URLs PowerAthleteHQ.com. Uh, we do a podcast every week called Power Athlete Radio. And uh, we've been doing a morning show since this COVID-19 stuff, which I'm so glad we didn't talk about. I feel like this thing has been beat to fucking death. Uh, we've been doing a kind of a morning what we call Brew with the Crew, which um, at, at work we meet at 6 a.m. and we kind of game plan for our day. We do like a little five or ten minute like, hey, what do you do for your training? What do you got going today? Just kind of a little game plan. So we just decided to throw on and do an Instagram live in the morning and just kind of show people what we do and answer some questions. So we've been doing that. But um for the most part, uh, you know, I'm just pretty easy to find. I'm not hiding. So I'm out there. Awesome. Well, John, we'll, we'll definitely link that stuff to the show notes so our listeners can head over. I think they're going to enjoy this one and uh, probably follow along on some of your stuff. Okay, John, well, are, you still, are, you still, are you still in Newport Beach? Is that where you're at now? Or? No, uh, I moved to Austin three years ago. Okay, so we, Austin, never mind. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. we had an interesting deal where uh, we were living in Newport Beach. I was living in Dover Shores and uh, had a really bitch in like 60s Brady Bunch mid-century house. And some dude in a black, matte black Lamborghini pulled up and uh, offered us cash for our house about a million bucks more than what we paid for about four years before. So we took the cash, moved out. 30 days later, we rented the place. And then we ended up buying 16 acres here just outside Austin. And I built a, a building, you know, for my shop. I weld and fabricate and work on trucks as a hobby. And then we have a gym on the other side. And then I have a big barn that we uh, ended up, you know, finishing out for all the employees. And I live here. And so it's, uh, it's pretty interesting when this whole thing happened. Everything was already encased here. So we, uh, we were pretty well prepared for all this. Yeah, I was going to say, because I'm in Laguna Hills now. And then oh, nice. uh, Austin, I went to college in Austin, UT. So oh, nice. Uh, Austin's a nice town. I really like it. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're out west in Bee Cave. So if yeah, you know I'm Hamilton sure. Pool. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah we nice, live off yeah. of Hamilton Pool. 
in that area and it's great. I, um, yeah, I, I grew up in Southern California, I grew up in Palos Verdes and, um, you know, lived in Newport beach for a number of years, lived down by the wedge and, you know, lived in the Cannery area and then also, uh, up in Dover shores. So it was great, but just time to do something, trying to just needed a change. All right. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, John. It's been really informative and, uh, we're, we're, we'll be excited to get this out to the listeners and thanks for what you're doing. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. See you. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.